0: This is Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jem Ekman, President of Grace University. Issues in Perspective provides a weekly overview of news that pertains to your Christian life and is designed to help you discern and interpret issues that affect you in light of God's truth. Here is Dr. Jem Ekman to help you think biblically about these issues. Welcome and thank you for being with me today on our program Issues in Perspective. In a first perspective on this special Christmas edition of Issues in Perspective, I want to think with you about themes of hallelujah and worship at Christmas time. No doubt, sometime during the 2011 Christmas season, you have heard the reverberating words from George Friedrich Handel's imposing oratorio, Messiah. Written in just 24 days in 1741, Messiah has three distinct sections, part one, the Christmas story, part two, the redemption story, and part three, the resurrection and future reign of Christ on heaven and earth. Initially, Handel's oratorio was performed more during the Easter holiday, but gradually it became associated with Christmas, such that today it is almost always performed sometime in December by community, church, and college choirs throughout the nation. The Hallelujah Chorus, now almost always also sung at Christmas, is the majestic culmination of Messiah, the story of Jesus that Handel detailed in music, the story that was foretold by the prophets, especially Isaiah, heralded in the Annunciation and portrayed throughout his earthly life. The story's message centers on the King and his kingdom. Indeed, the central theme of both the first and last book of the New Testament is Jesus as King. For example, Matthew's Gospel is the only one to record the visit of the Magi from the East, who sought the one born King of the Jews, for we have seen his star in the East and have come to worship him. Once they found him in Bethlehem, their gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh were worthy of royalty." The book of Revelation records the astonishing song of heaven's multitudes pronouncing, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Handel quotes that, Revelation 11.15. In addition, throughout the gospel accounts, we see Jesus healing the sick, raising the dead, and casting out demons, all the while proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand. His titles, Son of Man, I Am, Son of God, all reflect His divine royalty. His preaching, especially the Beatitudes, provides the ethical paradigm for kingdom living. Finally, as He answered His disciples' questions in Matthew 24, He charted the course of His second advent, when He will establish His earthly kingdom in all its fullness. Therefore, For genuine biblical Christianity, Christmas is more than Christmas carols, white lights, sumptuous food, and family. It is the inauguration of God's kingdom. In the New Testament, Jesus is declared to be King of kings and Lord of lords. In fact, near the end of Handel's oratorio, we hear the phrase King of kings and Lord of lords from Revelation 19 verse 16 sung in a stirring fourfold refrain culminating in a fivefold hallelujah. Tradition has it that England's King George II was so moved in 1743 by the performance of Messiah, especially the hallelujah chorus, that he stood to his feet, giving reverence for an even greater king. The rest of the audience stood as well as have audiences for generations since. The Hallelujah Chorus anticipates the day when a great multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language will stand before His throne in celebration of God and His salvation. For Christians, then, that is why we sing the Hallelujah Chorus God, His Messiah, and His Kingdom have come to earth. And the worship at Christ- Christmas time is but a prelude of all that is to come. For then the chorus of hallelujahs will ring forevermore. Hallelujah. In our second perspective on the program today, I want to think with you about Charles Dickens and the message of Christmas. For over 150 years, Charles Dickens' story of the miserly, miserable Ebenezer Scrooge and his three ghosts have been a regular Christmas tradition throughout Western civilization. Indeed, even Hollywood has fueled this tradition by producing more than 15 feature productions of A Christmas Carol. Why is this story so powerful, so gripping, and such a staple of the holiday season? The answer lies in understanding its author, Charles Dickens. Charles Dickens is arguably the most influential novelist in the English language. It was his Christmas stories and his struggle with Christianity that dominated much of his life and permeated his writings. Born in 1812, Dickens' early life was one of poverty. His father, a lowly government clerk, found himself in debtor's prison, and young Charles consequently found himself laboring in the dismal factories and workhouses of the day. These years marked Dickens. When he finally escaped poverty later in life, he devoted his abundant writing gifts to exploring the lives of the poor, the frustrated, and the unfulfilled. These themes we see in his books, The Pickwick Papers, Oliver Twist, Nicholas Nickleby, David Copperfield, than A Tale of Two Cities and Closing with Great Expectations. Because of his success as a novelist, his life was truly a rags-to-riches story. At the heart of Dickens' writing is the quest for significance, which eventually led him to explore the Christian faith. But he struggled with the consistency of Anglican Christianity. He saw so much hypocrisy and hurt in the supposedly Christian nation of England. He thus wrote innumerable essays on the disparity between Christian teaching and Christian practice, and he lectured widely on the nature of Christian ethics and society. He even wrote a perplexing yet searching life of Christ entitled Life of Our Lord. He wrote that for his children. And he read that to them. In fact, we didn't know it existed until the early 20th century. It was then discovered and published, I believe it was in 1934. But the life of our Lord is his take, if you will, on the life of Jesus. And he wanted his children to know about Jesus. In fact, when his children left home, he gave each one of them a copy of the New Testament. But it is his annual Christmas stories, which he began publishing in 1843, that were the most widely used form for his musings on Christianity. The first, and in my judgment the best, is of course A Christmas Carol. Everyone knows the story. Ebenezer Scrooge and his clerk, Bob Cratchit, whose financially destitute yet joyful family ekes out an existence in old London. And in Old London, that story, they constitute the main characters of A Christmas Carol. Cratchit's youngest son, of course, Tiny Tim, is the focal point, then, of Scrooge's miserliness. The ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future haunt Scrooge throughout Christmas Eve night as they expose all of his sins and shortcomings. He comes to terms with his greed and his selfishness, as in dickens words that squeezing wrenching grasping scraping clutching covetous miser in short scrooge is regenerated almost born again into a generous compassionate loving man who rescues tiny tim from death and becomes one who knew how to keep christmas well powerfully and with crystal clear clarity dickens story is thus The transformation of Ebenezer Scrooge, depravity, dispossession, and depression are overcome by the power of repentance, redemption, and resurrection. Perhaps Scrooge is actually Charles Dickens' alter ego, ending his quest for significance in the story of Christmas. What lessons does Dickens teach us through his redemptive story, so to speak, of Ebenezer Scrooge? Dickens gives us no reason to believe that Scrooge had ever been dishonest in his business dealings. He's thrifty, disciplined, and hardworking. But it seems to me that Dickens is arguing that these virtues are not enough. As Scrooge's early patron, Fezziwig, demonstrates, money-making, generosity, and a spirit of goodwill are not only compatible, but are inextricably linked in a purpose-filled life. Private charity combined with hard work in Scrooge's personal redemption. Although considerably romanticized, Dickens also depicts hard-working families gathered for a day of well-earned rest, merriment, and modest excess, the Cratchit family. Christmas Day becomes a reassuring antidote to the factory jobs and crowded cities of Victorian England. Today, we are far removed from Victorian England. But perhaps that is why we love the story so much. We can identify with Ebenezer Scrooge in his miserliness, yet also long for his redemption. The message of Christmas is simple God understands our miserly, selfish, self centered, self indulgent human condition. And he provides our redemption through Jesus Christ. The message of the Christmas remains that the babe in the manger on Christmas morning was God's unspeakable gift to the human race. Until and unless we embrace that reality, we will remain in hopeless destitution as a modern Ebenezer Scrooge. But isn't it refreshing That because of Jesus and because of his finished work on Calvary's cross and his subsequent resurrection, we have hope. And indeed, it is in Jesus that we find the purpose and the meaning and the fulfillment and the joy and the abundance of life. In a very real sense, that is exactly what happened to Ebenezer Scrooge. Now, Jesus isn't mentioned The salvation that's available in Christ isn't the central core of A Christmas Carol. But it does seem to me that Charles Dickens is getting at that redemptive theme as he charts the transformation of Ebenezer Scrooge from that destitute, miserly man into a generous, compassionate man. That is the transforming work. Of genuine biblical Christianity. That is the struggle that we see in Dickens' life and perhaps it is resolved in his Christmas stories. I sure hope so. In our third and final special Christmas edition of Issues in Perspective, I want to think with you about the hope of Christmas. One of my favorite books, or it's actually a series of books, is The Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. In the first book of the series, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Narnia is frozen in a seemingly permanent state of cold, frigid winter. There's never spring, and there's never Christmas. Edmund is enslaved, as you might remember in the story, to the white witch because he loved her offering of Turkish delights. He's trapped and now he's hopeless. But Edmund notices that all of a sudden it seems to be less cold in Narnia. There are green sprigs of grass bursting forth from the snow and there's the sound of running water. What had been frozen there's now running water. Why? Aslan, a clear Christ-like figure in the series, is near. Andre Su writes, His breath warms the sin-cursed ground, thaws the icicles around relationships, and ends indentured servitude to the witch we love for Turkish delight. A lifelong winter that was never. Christmas melts into Christmas and all the joy that it brings. N.C.S. Lewis's first volume, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, as Aslan is coming back to Narnia, as the thawing has begun, one of the characters, Mr. Beaver, almost sings a song, but it's poetry. This is what he says. Speaking and thinking about the transformation that Aslan will bring. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bares his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. In so many ways, we humans are caught in this Narnia-like tension. The thawing has begun, but we are often cold, barren, and seemingly lifeless when it comes to spirituality. We experience great defeat in our daily battle with sin, yet we see victories. We live with the reality of a sin-cursed fallen world, yet we await the soon and certain return of our King. There's great, almost immeasurable sorrow in this fallen world. Yet, there's great comfort as well, a comfort that comes from Jesus. Sue writes, For Christ has come indeed, but we live in the in-between time, where old age and new age overlap, and things are messy. The lion has come, yes, is sacrificed on the stone table. But the book has several chapters in it yet. This is a mop-up operation, not a chimera. The skirmishes are real. Let us lay hold of Christmas then, seizing the day in its power until the day dawns and the morning star rises with all the confidence of spring. As Christians, we are caught in this tension of the already not yet we have the certainty of salvation that Jesus Christ purchased for us, but we await his triumphant return and the establishment of his glorious kingdom. The rebellion will end, and all of his creation will acknowledge him as King of kings and Lord of lords. In the words of Revelation 7:16 7, and 17, there will be no more hunger, thirst, disease, and pain. There will be no more tears. Until that time comes, we wait. The first Advent provides the basis of our salvation through Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. The second Advent will complete the program of redemption. That is the promise, and that is the hope of Christmas. The hope of Christmas morning gives us a certainty about God's providence, in the affairs of humans, one of the best examples of this hope is the writing of the Christmas carol "Silent Night." The setting is Oberndorf, Austria, not very far from Salzburg, Austria. On December the twenty-third, eighteen eighteen, the new village priest Joseph Mohr faced the challenge of a broken organ which could not be prepared until after Christmas. That night, he attended a nativity pageant in a neighboring village. As he walked home from viewing this stirring pageant, he reflected on that first Christmas. He began to fashion and put together a poem in his mind, and even then he entitled it Silent Night. After he got home from that pageant in a nearby village, he sat down and composed three stanzas. He showed that poem to the church organist Franz Gruber, who composed the melody, writing his arrangement for the guitar. Remember, the organ for the church was broken. So that Christmas Eve, Moore and Gruber sang with a choir of young girls, this new hymn silent night to the accompaniment of a guitar. Church members loved the new Christmas carol, and it spread rapidly through the hills of Austria and eventually around the world. Had the organ not broken in Oberndorf that Christmas season, there would have been no silent night. God's providence as we live in the tension of the already, not yet, is real and dependable. God continues to accomplish his purposes, his way. And that indeed is one of the key themes of Christmas. Who would ever have imagined that God would send his son to a little tiny community like Bethlehem? Five miles south of Jerusalem, Bethlehem was a small little community, and his earthly parents, the parents of Jesus, came from Nazareth, a backwater town in Galilee. When Jesus was born on that Christmas day, all eyes were on the Roman Empire. Caesar Augustus was ruling. Rome ruled with terror, with fear, with power. And Rome would let you do almost anything you wanted. You could worship almost anyone you wanted, as long as you paid your taxes and didn't create any disorder or chaos. Then Rome would crush you. The eyes of the world were on Rome. But God showed up in Bethlehem. And when that occurred, when Jesus was born, nobody else knew about it. But the Bible says the heavens sung, the angels broke forth with Hilarious, and I mean that in the true meaning of that word, glorifying hymns to the Christ who was born. Dear people, that's the reality for you and me in this fallen world. The already has occurred. Redemption has been purchased. Christ has come. His death, burial, and resurrection has purchased our redemption. Justification is available by faith but we still struggle. The earth remains fallen, but now there's a new hope. The Christ child now is sitting at the right hand of the Father, waiting for his Father to say, go get your bride, your church. Until that day comes, that not-yet-tension is very real in our lives. But as I mentioned in reviewing quickly the story of Silent Night, reflects, in terms of how it really occurred, the providential sovereignty of God. Dear people, that's what keeps me going. In this world that's so chaotic, so unpredictable, so uncertain, so many things have happened, whether this year natural disasters or the political dysfunction of Washington or the unpredictability of our world or the financial disasters we see all around us. Where is your hope? It must be focused on the providential sovereign God who accomplishes his purposes, his way. And dear people, that's the message of Christmas. Because when Jesus was born, no one in the world, humanly speaking, knew about it. But God did, and his plan of redemption was on track. And he accomplished everything that needed to be accomplished in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are longing for his return, and until the not yet occurs, our hope is focused on him, the blessed hope of the church. It is he whom we worship. It is he who receives our devotion this Christmas, and it is he who is the center of our celebration. Merry Christmas, God bless you, and have a happy new year. Jim Ekman. Issues in Perspective is a listener supported program and ministry of Grace University. You can listen to this program as well as past programs on the web. Just log on to IssuesInPerspective.com and click on the Listen to button. You can also find the link to Dr. Ekman's website by logging on to this radio station's website and click on the Issues in Perspective banner ad. Issues in Perspective depends on listeners like you in order to broadcast on this station and other Christian radio stations across the country please send your tax-deductible donation to Issues in Perspective, P.O. Box 3251, Omaha, Nebraska, 68103. Your generous donation will help spread the Word of God and how it relates to culturally engaged Christians in today's world.